Hey everyone, I'm Father Sam Kachuba. I'm Matt Sparaza. Welcome to The Tangent. We're really excited. We have a, a really fun guest today, a, a really great interview. And um, yeah, he's, uh, well, he's fairly well known. Yeah, pretty well known. Yeah. Pretty well known. Um, his, That's his true. Talks, his talks have been heard by many people. Um, sure. You, you might sure. say thousands, if not uh, tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's an author of That's true. many books. That's true. Many books. Many books. Um, Between such, 40 and 50. Yeah, such that I'm not sure he knows how many books he's actually written, which is a pretty awesome accomplishment. Yeah, I that's think. an impressive statistic. Yeah. When you've forgotten how many books you've written, uh, you're, you're doing pretty well. I think that's, yeah. that's an impressive thing. Yeah. yeah. I know how many books I've written. Uh, none. None zero. books is how yeah, many books I've written. Yeah. None right, books. Right. None books. The, the big zero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a, a professor, a teacher. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you, Matt, like me, he has a beard. Yes. Right? He is a That's bearded true. man, right? Yep, yep. That's um, true. Let's see. What what other things can we say about this uh, about this guest of ours? He grew up in Pittsburgh, and I have been to Pittsburgh. That's right. And, and your wife and, is from Pittsburgh. And my wife Pittsburgh. is from Pittsburgh, much yes. more importantly. Right. Wife, I got married <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, those are important things, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I uh, I once gave him holy communion during a, a mass. And really? I had a, I had a little bit of a, a panic moment. I was I was so excited that he was in my line for communion. As like the fr- the most <laughs> famous person I had ever given communion to up, up to that point. Like I was I was more nervous. Of, I gave I gave Regis Philbin communion once too, and I was I was way more nervous to give to give our guest holy communion than I was sure. to, to meet Reg. And let um, let me tell you something. That is saying something. Right? Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Regis was great. He came up to me after mass. Hi, Father. This is my. I'm Regis Philbin. This is my wife Joy. And he's like, he was Regis the whole way. It was, it was amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, actually, very, very nice guy. God rest his soul. Uh, anyway, back to our guest because that's mm-hmm. way more important. Folks, I want you to enjoy this interview because we had a really good time recording. Yeah. And honestly, I don't think we had to say anything. We just listened most of the time, didn't we? Yeah, the first the first half hour it was definitely a lot of listening, which I was very grateful for because you know I appreciate everything he says. I feel like uh, I I put a lot of stock in his words, uh, so I was grateful to just listen. Yeah, he's he's a brilliant teacher, and it was we got a master class in a very short amount of time on on the Bible. He was in full teacher mode, and I can't thank him enough for it. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. So I guess we should probably tell people who our guest was. Uh, <laughs> Today, Matt and I were really privileged to have an an amazing conversation with the one, the only, Dr. Scott Hahn. Enjoy the episode. If you're listening on the radio, don't forget to go and download our podcast wherever you like to get your podcasts, The Tangent, on the Veritas Catholic Network app, etc., etc. Just enjoy this. It's really cool. And God bless you. Dr. Scott Hahn, welcome to The Tangent. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Father Sam. I'm very excited about your new book, Holy Is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. I was telling Matt, I used this in my homily yesterday. Um, I haven't finished the book yet, but I decided I was going to jump right in and do it um, <laughs> because <laughs> it's such a unique uh, such a unique concept. As, as you're diving into this, you're, you're explaining holiness, which is, as you say, right at the very beginning of the book, a, a term that's barely defined. Right. Yeah, I mean, holiness is one of those terms that we could call Catholic jargon, but it's also shot throughout all of Scripture. And so we kind of assume we know what it means until we start to reflect upon it. And once we do, you know, I I point this out in the beginning of the book that it goes back over 50 years in my case, because when I was 14 years old, and I'm 65 now, that was when I experienced this young adult conversion. And I was mentored by this amazing young theologian at the time by the name of Dr. R.C. Sproul, who was working on a, a series of talks that became the chapters of his book, The Holiness of God. And it was captivating because he was talking about holiness in a way that went beyond the kind of lovey-dove, chummy, buddy Jesus, you know, and the kind of syrupy love of God that just didn't square with what I found in the Bible. And so he points out how, you know, 
the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. If the seraphim cover their faces and cry sanctus, just who do we think we are? Well, Moses at the burning bush turns away. It's it's fascinating, that bush that's ablaze but not being consumed, but it's terrifying. And, you know, I for a while, I really recognized my need to approach God with that sort of fear and trembling before the Holy One of Israel. And at the same time, I discovered, well, holiness cannot be reduced to the experience that creatures have in the face of God. Whether we're humans or seraphim, holiness, we hear in Scripture, you know, you alone are holy, tu salus sanctus. So what is holiness for God, you know? And um, what I discovered over the course of years, and I mean decades, because this is a research project that, for me at least, represents the culmination of the Lamb's Supper, as well as Lord have mercy, hail holy queen. All these other studies that I've done, just assuming that I knew what I was talking about when I would speak of the holiness of God. And then, you know, you begin to recognize that, wait a second, when you really, when you take a close look at sacred scripture and how gradual, how slowly the revelation of God's holiness is progressively revealed, and then, you know, I take stock in my own life and I realize, okay, you know, I, I became a Catholic, you know, 37 years ago, but becoming a saint is not the same thing. Mm. You know? and, and so right. God, show me what it means for you to be holy, why we always pray the Our Father, the first of the seven petitions. It's like the, the first order of business is hallowed be thy name. We're not asking you know, for help to make God's name any holier than it is. We're asking God for his help to make us much holier than we are. Make us saints. That's a good way to paraphrase that first petition. And mm-hmm. deliver us from evil reminds us that we are helpless in the face of these evil powers that are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, you know, it really does incite my heart. It ignites my heart, really. And, uh, you know, the catechism, ironically, ended up providing the best definition of holiness. And I, and I begin the book with that, and I return to it over and over again, because in paragraph 2809, we read that the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of God's eternal mystery. And then it goes on to distinguish what is revealed about God's holiness in creation and in history. That's what scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. But again, when we see glory, we're in awe. But there is something that is intrinsic to God, holiness. What is that? Well, in a certain sense, it's off limits. It's inaccessible. And that's an allusion to the Holy of Holies, of course, in the temple, which was inaccessible to anybody, to everybody, except the high priest. And he was only allowed in one day out of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to atone for his sins and the people's. And then he had to quickly exit with a blessing, but he wasn't just there like Moses was, say, in Exodus 33, speaking to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And, and, and so I just basically had to go back and study this. And what's so exciting about it for me now is um, what we have done at the St. Paul Center is not only publish the book through our publishing arm, which is Emmaus Road, but we've also released this new st- series called Holy is His Name, that is going to be live streaming throughout all of Lent. On Wednesdays, we're going to release two episodes each week so we can get through all 12 of them. And each episode is only about 20 minutes long. And we have a study guide to help people so that beginners are going to get out of it. They're going to get a lot out of it. Intermediate students of Scripture as well as the more advanced students, I think there's something there for everybody and, you know, so I, I, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that stpaulcenter.com forward slash holy study is where <laughs> people can go to get this. They can get the book as well as the study guide. But what we have experienced over the last few years, when we, un, when we roll out or unveil the new series, we've done Genesis to Jesus, the Bible and the Mass, but we've had hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people watching this during Lent for live streaming. Mm. And the blessings, I mean, they're just uh, super abundant. They really are. Yeah. Fantastic. I love the the idea of 
creating these things as studies that can be used for, for parishes, yeah. that can be used at home privately. The, the idea of, of getting this stuff out there, and you, know, you made reference to some of your, your other books, uh, to uh, The Lamb's Supper, um, and to, to these other things. The Lamb's Supper for me was, was a, a game changer in my own understanding of the Mass and of, of the Eucharist. As um, I think I read it for the first time as a senior in high school. And it, it just opened up so many doors for me yeah. as, I was, as I was looking at what is the Eucharist, what's this all about? Um, of course, at that time, I don't remember if there was a, a study that went with it yet. Um, but I remember then later on seeing that there was a study that, that yep. came along and as well. I don't know if I'm going to do the study now because I've already read the book. Uh, <laughs> I read it you know, a while ago. But I was looking at this when, when we got the copies of, of this book and that it came with, with the study guide. Um, as you started the St. Paul Center, Emmaus Road Publishing, and as you started doing these things, can you tell us a little bit about what was it like and, and what was the motivation behind it to get these things out, especially so that more and more people could have access? Well, I'm a thinker and I'm a dreamer, whereas Kimberly is a planner and a schemer. I mean, she came up with the whole plan, along with our good friend, Mike Aquilina, who's still our vice president. But when we started it in 2001, we both were thinking about what we could do to kind of bring together all of the tapes and the, the projects, the, the books, and, and create a momentum so that other people could really enter into the excitement, the joy, not simply of converting and entering into the Catholic Church, but also of a transformation that the Catholic Church calls conversion, ongoing, constant conversion. Mm -hmm. And so we started this. In fact, I remember uh, interviewing our first candidate uh, on September 11th because uh, she said, oh, wow. are you watching the TV? And I wasn't, and I turned it on and saw it's indelibly stamped in my memory as to when wow. we were beginning. And yeah. it represented for me a sort of crisis point where our Western civilization was in a state of attack and collapse, both externally and internally. And so we wanted to set up something that would represent legacy of scriptural faith for Catholics, but for all Christians too, beginner, intermediate, advanced, you know. But the mission was reading scripture from the heart of the church, because that's what the Lamb's Supper was all about. And it had just come out the previous year. And so the idea of discovering how the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed and fulfilled in the new, but that the sacraments embody that fulfillment so that it's not just over and done in the past, but it's here and now in the real mm. presence. And so when we started off, we, we weren't really sure about what it would become. <laughs> That's an understatement because now <laughs> 20 years later, you know, across the street from where I sit, there are a bunch of construction workers who are building our headquarters that should be opened later this year, 25,000 oh, wow. square feet, two acres. We've got, you know, between 40 and wow. 50 full-time co-workers along with volunteers and part-time staff. And it's like, if I had known what this was going to be, I would have been too scared to say yes, you know, but our Lord sort of withholds right. that in a gracious and subtle way. He's right. so holy in his connivance. Yeah, praise so God. So the St. Paul Center now has priest retreats um, three times a year. We've been doing this since 05. Uh, and yet we kept coming up with waiting lists. Priests wanted to come for almost a mm -hmm. week to get retooled in Scripture. And so we went to two a year. Now we've gone to three a year. And last year we had nearly 700 priests go through wow. this program. And to say that it's transformative is almost an understatement because, you know, these priests testify not only to this is what we signed up for, but we never got it in seminary. Now at long last, we're not only getting it, but we're getting it together. So you're with these like-minded kindred spirit brother priests who are like, this is what the sacraments are all about. This is what really ought to impact our preaching and change the way we approach the word of God. And so we sometimes feel like, are we allowed to have this much fun on the you know, on this side of heaven? <laughs> Yeah, so in other words, then holiness is fun. Yes, it brings joy. <laughs> holiness can be fun. In a joyless world. Yeah, right, right. Well, <laughs> one of your chapters is about holiness and the priesthood yeah. uh, in this in this book. And you, you kind of allude to the fact that in, in the ancient priesthood, the, the Old Testament priesthood, it's, it's primarily a sacrificial ritual priesthood. Right. Uh, and then you see the priesthood developing in the New Testament with 
the priesthood of the apostles that is evangelical in its its outlook. It's it focused on on both preaching and on baptizing and on the celebration of of the Eucharist. But then you also make the point that modern understanding of, of priesthood also includes a lot of administration, a lot of uh, a lot of other stuff that isn't quite in the description <laughs> that doesn't necessarily fit the job description. Um, and, you know, as a pastor myself, I can tell you that's absolutely accurate. You, you, know, you, you nailed it. There's all kinds of administrative things that aren't there. Um, how do we start to recover a little bit of the, the true nature of the priesthood while still respecting the fact that we have these other things that are sort of necessary evils that go along with the job? Well, you know, part of my job as a theologian is making distinctions, you know. So it starts with Jesus himself. You know, we have one person and two natures, divine and human. With the Trinity, we've got three persons who share one nature. So making distinctions is essential. And when you reflect upon holiness, both practically and theoretically, you end up discovering distinctions, you know, that that originally, back in Genesis, during the patriarchal period, you didn't have a separate tribe or a sacred caste like the Levites. You had the patriarchs. And by virtue of their fatherhood, they built altars like in Noah and Abraham. They would offer sacrifices to, they would pronounce blessings. Why? Because they're fathers. And they would raise up their sons, especially the firstborn son. The principle of royal priestly primogeniture has been the subject of my research for many, many years. You know, and so you talk about the administrative aspects of the priesthood. You distinguish, in my case, what I've done as a father of six and now as Papa, a grandfather of 21, from what I do. No way, you know, 21. Yes, from the first three. That's amazing. And the fourth Praise one, God. The fourth child of ours is uh, the one I dedicated the book to, and that is Father Jeremiah Hahn, who received holy hmm. orders uh, a little bit less than two years ago. And so wow. it is, it, it's exciting. But, you know, as you father these children, you also have mortgage payments and budget. You know, you also have to clean the garage. You've got a job right. and you've got to do taxes and all of that. And so <laughs> what you want to do is distinguish the things that are higher from the things that are lower. But again, you distinguish to unite, not to separate. Mm. And I think this is what the world has lost. You know, for example, we distinguish three persons from one nature in the Trinity. We distinguish one person, Jesus, and the two natures. So we distinguish the higher part of our calling which is relational, which is sacred. It is holy matrimony in my case. It is also fathering our children who are really intent to become God's children. And there's something profoundly priestly about this. And mm. so we are a kingdom of priests mm. in terms of the priesthood of the baptized, but then there's the ministerial priesthood, which we distinguish again, not to oppose, but to unite, because you're able to call upon heaven and bring down what? The bread of life? You know, I was Jeremiah's breadwinner for most of his life, and now he thinks, yes, he can bring to us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. You know, and so another distinction that I make in the book, I wasn't able to draw out, and that is the confusion that is often present when people think about righteousness as though it's the same thing as holiness. Now, they are closely related, just like Jesus' humanity and divinity. But righteousness has to do with the horizontal plane of human relations, of keeping those commandments like honor your father and mother, do not kill, do not commit adultery, don't lie or bear false witness. Whereas holiness pertains to what we call the first table of the law, the first three out of the Ten Commandments. So we worship the one true God without having any other gods before him. We take upon his name, we, we call upon his name in humility, not in vain, and we remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the only time holy is mentioned in the Ten Commandments, is mm. in the third, and it's twice, and it's longer, the third command, than all of the yeah. other, the last seven put together. This is holiness. This is the realm of the priest in the temple offering sacrifice, whereas righteousness pertains to what the king does or the judge in the court. And so, again, we're not distinguishing to oppose them or separate them out. We're distinguishing to bring unity of life because hmm. so often we regard religion as, you know, it's like beauty in the eyes of the beholder. You know, what do you want on your pizza? Anchovies, no thank you. You know, pepperonis for me. But at the same time, we've got to recognize this is not a matter of just 
personal preference. This is a matter not only of public revelation from God, the authority of our Creator, but this is really the first order of business. So mm. holiness pertains to how Jesus answered the lawyer's question, which is the greatest commandment. Well, there were 613 to choose from in the law of Moses, but Jesus knew exactly where to go. Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength because you came from him. He gave you everything. You're going to return to him and give an account. But the second is like unto it, but it's second. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's quoting Leviticus 19, 18. So he's mm -hmm. going back and he's showing us they're not all equal, but this one is the most important one, and it's the most forgotten one. And so for us to retrieve the distinction between holiness and righteousness, between the priest and the king, between the first table and the second, I would say this is the first order of business for all Catholics, whether we're clergy or laity, cradle Catholics or converts, whatever the case, this is the key that's going to unlock the door to a conversion that is ongoing for each and every one of us. Can you speak to so so later on in the book you and you and you mentioned it briefly already um, that with Christ came the the usage of of the word saint yeah. right that it it was prior it was holy and it became sainthood um, and how sainthood is ultimately right. in Christ can you speak to uh, specifically your usage of Galatians two twenty I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? So that that concept that you elaborate on, John 6, mm. Galatians 20, that yeah, concept. Yeah, I mean, you have just put your finger on it, Matt, because when Paul says that in Galatians 2.20, he's saying precisely that one thing that his former self, Saul the Pharisee, could never have said or seen. This is the breakthrough. This is how the new is concealed in the old. So that if you're studying the law and the prophets under the greatest rabbi in antiquity, Rabbi Gamaliel, Saul's mentor, mm -hmm. you can't see that any more than you can see the beauty of the stained glass windows in my church from the sidewalk. You know, you've got to allow the lights to stream through. And so the light of Christ blinded Paul naturally to enable him to see supernaturally. And this is something that he not only needed once on the Damascus road, but in a continual way. And this is helpful for us, again, practically and personally, because life for us, as we experience it, is a continuum. You know, we can separate infancy after childbirth from childhood, from adolescence, from young adulthood to now, you know, grandparenthood and that sort of thing. But the way we experience it is just a flowing stream. But when you look back on the Old Testament, as I do in this book, you realize that in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you've got 50 chapters. You've got Kodesh, the Hebrew word for holiness. But it occurs only once, near the very beginning, in Genesis 2, verse 3, where God declares the seventh day to be holy. And no wonder, because the seventh day is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign of the covenant that God has made with creation, but especially with these two creatures who bear his image and likeness, our first parents, mm. But why doesn't it occur ever, ever again? You turn the page, and in Genesis 3, because our first parents broke the covenant. On the one hand, they were given sanctifying grace. God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. That's more than oxygen. That's the Holy Spirit. Genesis 2, verse 7 is the key to understanding what happened and why it is. the result is like holiness doesn't occur anywhere else in the entire book. Because in Genesis 2, 17, the Lord God says, you can eat from all of the trees and the fruit, but not this one. The day you eat of that, you will surely die. Well, that's mm. significant because when you turn the page in Genesis 3, the serpent says, you won't die. And so what did they do? They went ahead and they ate. And what happened next? They both dropped dead? <laughs> Hardly. They were putting fig leaves, you know, places they didn't see the need before. But wait, the serpent said, you won't die. The Lord God could have said, you'll deserve to die. You'll begin to die. You'll be sentenced to die. He said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, he wasn't talking about physical life or natural death. He was talking about the breath that he himself had breathed into our first father's nostrils, which is the Holy Spirit. It is the breath of God. It is sanctifying grace. He had life that's natural and human, but simultaneously he was given supernatural life that is divine and eternal. And so when you commit a mortal sin 
as we read in 1 John 5, 16, it is a sin unto death, thanatos, the same word used for you will die the death the day you eat of it. So our first parents didn't just transgress. Our first father desecrated the sanctuary. Genesis 1 describes the world as a temple. Genesis 2 describes the Garden of Eden in terms of the Holy of Holies. So Adam, as the high priest of humanity, desecrates this. He's cast out. And what does the Lord do? He puts two cherubim with flaming swords. Well, every ancient Israelite reader would say, two cherubim, where are they? In the Holy of Holies. That's why Hmm. we're not allowed back in, because our first father committed original sin. We contracted original sin, but original sin is not understood well by one in a hundred Catholics. I think we we think like Protestants. When I was a Protestant, original sin is being born guilty, being born depraved, like Calvin right, would right, say. That original no, depravity for, that, yeah. yeah. total depravity. For Catholics, it's being born totally deprived. Deprived of what? Of the divine mm-hmm. life that our first parents had and then forfeited. This is why it's called spiritual death, or what the catechism says is the death of the soul. The death of the body mm-hmm. is the separation of body and soul. The death of the soul is the separation of the soul from the Holy Spirit, who we basically kicked out through committing mortal sin. So when we contract original sin, it is not inherited guilt. It's more like a disinherited thing. You know, we have been disinherited of the Mm -hmm. divine life that our first parents had. And this is the key to Galatians 2.20 and everything else that Paul teaches. He's talking about what Christ introduces as the new Adam. They're in Romans 5, and how do we get in on the action? Romans 6, baptism. More than washing away some right. stain on our soul right. called original sin, you know, like the before and after picture. Ooh, what's that ugly sound? That's original. Oh, look at the aftershot. You know, it's it's all No. <laughs> you look at the before picture, and it's a total vacancy. There is a real absence right. of God's spirit dwelling in us, mm-hmm. and that's why Paul describes in Romans 6 that baptism brings about nothing less than get ready for it, the resurrection of our soul. More than what Lazarus got from Jesus after four days, he got his physical natural life back in the body, but we get the supernatural eternal life back of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Trinity. It's like, get the fireworks ready. I mean, this is why St. Francis of Assisi would literally sometimes genuflect before a newly baptized infant, and the friars would ask him why, behold the temple of the eternal Trinity. And so that Mm -hmm. glaring, Mm. That conspicuous silence of holiness in the rest of Genesis, as I explained, gets us ready for what Exodus brings about. Because in the 40 chapters of Exodus, you have holiness used like almost 100 times, 98 according to my count. And everything is holy. The holy ground, take off your shoes. There's the burning Mm. bush. But likewise, the holy vestments of the priest, the holy ark of the covenant, the holy sacrifices, the feasts, the tabernacle itself, the holy of holies, and you're just off to the races. But then there's one thing. God calls Israel to be a holy nation. In Exodus, if you hear my voice and if you keep my covenant, it's a big if, then you'll be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Did they hear Mm -hmm. God's voice? No, they heard thunder. Moses heard his voice. Do they keep the covenant? No, they worship the golden calf. And so nobody in Exodus is ever described as holy, though everything else is. And as I point out, my friend Rabbi Joshua Berman, this Orthodox rabbi and great biblical scholar, just made this observation in his book on the temple that in contrast to the New Testament, nobody's ever called a saint in the old. I mean, with Mm -hmm. one apparent exception, Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes, dies, rises, And then he's ascending on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And when the Son of Man comes to the Father, he gets the kingdom in its fullness, but he turns around and imparts that to the, quote, saints of the Most High. Well, there, you've got people referred to as saints in the Old Testament, except it's only after the Son of Man has come, died, risen, and ascended into heaven. Oh, that's the new covenant being predicted in this prophecy of Daniel. It was the exception that sort of proved the rule And so you wake up and you discover one day, you know, okay, when I was an infant, I learned to walk and talk and, you know, potty training and all of the rest. Then as a child, you know, I'm learning reading, writing, and arithmetic. And as an adolescent, you know, you need to look back on all of the stages of life to realize, where am I now? 
What do I need? What has God given me? And when you look at the the progress of salvation history, as St. Irenaeus pointed out, it's also a paradigm for each and every one of us, our own spiritual life. We're infants, we're children, we're rebellious adolescents, and then we're called to grow up and really mm-hmm. internalize, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. <laughs> it's not a Buddhist perspective. There's no me anymore. It's Christ who lives in mm-hmm. me. And that's the key to enter into this union where you have the divine and the human united in him. He's united to us. It's like the dominoes start falling until we realize this is what Catholics mean by salvation. It's not just being forgiven. It's not just being healed. It's being sanctified. It's being made Mm -hmm. saints. Mm -hmm. So only when the father has sent the son, wait for it, to pour out the Holy Spirit, can we really say and believe and experience I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of what? Good citizens? No. Saints and nothing less. And that's the only thing for which we were made. That's the Mm. only goal. That's the only finish line that awaits us at the end of this long marathon. And just pulling together all of these things, we realize, where did we find these originally? Uh, In the creed, you know, the three parts of the creed, the 12 articles all summarize this, but what child will get that? What adolescent, you know, and so we're called to a- What adult would get that? What's that? What adult would get that? Exactly. These these are things that we don't we don't get to think about. You know, it's interesting you bring up that, that Buddhist perspective of the, the obliteration of self, yeah. that I want to disappear uh, and so be kind of one with the universe. Right. Right. And then to contrast that with what biblical revelation shows us that god never obliterates the person adam and eve sin and so there's the spiritual death that comes with that but adam and eve also are are still protected when uh cain kills abel he sends cain out but he marks him so that he can never be harmed by anyone else god always works even with his like the greatest sinners that appear in scripture he still works with them in them through them there's still the sense moses the holiest one even though he's not described as holy, but the one who spoke to God face to face as a friend speaks to a friend, it's still said that there has never been a greater man than Moses. Right. Right. Elijah taken up to heaven in, in a chariot. There's there's always this God with his people. Emmanuel, God is with us. And then contrast that with what we have today and what we're living through now, which is the exaltation of self above everything else. So it's not the obliteration of self. It's that I have to be, as Fulton Sheen has that that great talk where he says, uh, he's kind of criticizing the spirit of his age, which was, I got to be me. And he says it in that that great Fulton Sheen voice with just just so much sarcasm and it's just dripping and it, oh, it's beautiful. He's like, I got to be me. And it's just, oh, it's just a wonderful thing. But this this whole idea of the exaltation of the self over and above everything else. And what does that ever lead to? It leads to the the violence. It leads to the hatred that we have. It leads to the division. But holiness and recognizing ourselves in that context of God's love and and God's goodness and God's greatness beyond what we are leads us then to true unity to to real communion it leads us to the lamb supper it leads us to the the gift here and now that we know will not be fulfilled until we're in heaven but that whole that whole idea i think is is so important and and recognizing that it's it's just shot throughout the entirety of of scripture and that's one of the things i, I love in holy is his name you're breaking down the whole of the Bible. It's not just in one place. It's not just one little thing. Oh, I, I found this here. And it's not proof texting, right? Here's right. here's a, a, a nice quote from the Bible that seems to support my opinion. No, it's, it's a theme that runs throughout without ever being... Is it safe to say that it's never an explicit theme? It's simply present. Yeah, it's the air you breathe when you're reading scripture, you know, but what you begin to notice are the things that you didn't notice. That's the way it is kind of, you know, when you're growing up, all of the visions that the prophets had in the old Testament of heaven involve the glory of God and his majesty. And it also involves the vision of angels like the seraphim in Isaiah six shouting, holy, holy, holy as their song, as their cry, but they're only angels in heaven in the old Testament. And so when you shift over to the new, What difference does the New Testament make? Well, 
Jesus dies, he rises, he ascends into heaven, but it's not a solo act. You know, you read in Matthew 27, 51 and 52, that right after the resurrection, you have all of these tombs opened in and around Jerusalem and out come the saints. The saints? Yeah. The souls of the faithful departed in the Old Testament who were down in Sheol in the Hebrew, Hades in the Greek, awaiting the Messiah. When he went down, he basically plundered the realm of the dead and brought with him all of them. And when he ascends into heaven, he not only does what St. Paul describes in Ephesians. He he took captivity captive. He he took them up into heaven. He mm. ends up repopulating heaven. Talk about wave upon wave of legal immigrants. We are migrating from Hades to heaven right. so that the next time we hear holy, 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 it's only once in the old. It's only once in the new in Revelation 4 verse 8, who's singing it? The angels are, but so are the saints, the martyrs, the faithful, the woman, the mother of God, all of them together. You know, I, I discovered this in the Lamb's Supper over 20 years ago. It was hiding in plain view. But even then, I didn't fully realize that, wait a minute, what difference does the resurrection and ascension make? Not only do we have an entirely new population there in heaven, the angels and the saints, you've got a cloud of witnesses. They're not mm -hmm. spectators just kind of looking on, taking bets as to whether we'll win or lose. They're more deeply invested in us becoming holy as older brothers and sisters in Christ than we probably are for ourselves and our loved ones. It's like that much good news is almost too good to be true. <laughs> Unless, of course, it's the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the, the Catholic <laughs> gospel. You know, And this is why when we blow off the dust of these sacred mysteries that we call the Catholic faith, we realize these, this is like the hope diamond. This is the pearl of great price. This is so much more precious, beautiful, and powerful than we could have possibly understood as infants or children or teenagers. But let's be adults. Let's get over this mm -hmm. unholy handicap that, you know, makes us in our 30s, 40s, and 50s in terms of sports, the stock market, everything else, but still like six mm -hmm. or seven-year-olds when it comes to the articles of faith. So... In in, you know, in your book you mention uh, mysterium tremendens et fascinans. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. I probably didn't. Um, but how do you cultivate that fascination for the gospel? Because um, I, I I think it you know jumps off your point of why are we so interested in sports in the stock market? You know how is it that the 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 Catholic gospel is true and available, and we choose you know for me to watch the New York Rangers? It makes no sense. So how can I personally cultivate that fascination? Um, and then also just to throw it in there, uh, I'm newly married and I'm expecting my first son. So both, both I got married about seven months ago. How can I cultivate that fascination as a father in my family? Well, you know, Matt, that's a great question. And uh, the Rangers are of no interest. It's the Penguins for me. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is from Pittsburgh, so we struck a deal. I'm a Pirates fan now, and she's a, You're she's half a Rangers converted. fan. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Well, Pittsburgh is the center of world Presbyterianism. That's where I grew up. So <laughs> right, I forgot right. your question. <laughs> how do you cultivate a fascination for the gospel? Well, how do you cultivate a fascination for fatherhood? by holding your firstborn son, you know, by looking at the ultrasound mm. and allowing that to rock your world. Because we're not God, we're not in control, but the one who is, is holy and amazing. And you say, mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's a mystery that causes us to tremble. I remember picking up this big bundle of baby boy, our firstborn named Michael, nine pounds, seven ounces, 30 hours of labor, then a cesarean section in the middle of the night. And it was, it was a mysterium tremendum. I mean, I was trembling. It was tremendous mm -hmm. and fascinants. It's fascinating, you know? And so you have to step away from what you do and the works of your hands. And this is the significance of the seventh day that you look at what God has done and contemplate that and cultivate a sense of awe and wonder and allow that to happen by silence, by creating sacred space, by scheduling something every day called prayer, 
and not just the the vocal prayers. I love the rosary. It's my favorite. But that's because it made the gospels come alive when you contemplate the mysteries of Christ's life and so on. So, you know, it, it's so often the case that we grow comfortable with lies and we've got to be liberated from those comfortable lies. We've also got to be liberated from kind of fixating on the works of our own hands, the deadlines and all of the other things. Mm. And this is why keeping the Sabbath day holy is not just about getting the kids all dressed up, getting them in the car, getting them quiet, you know, and the things that we experienced for many years. It's six days you work, on the seventh you rest. You and your sons and daughters, but also your manservants and maidservants, and even the sojourners in your gates, along with your oxen and asses. The importance of silence, the importance of rest. It's not just watching the penguins. It really is looking upon the Lord, waiting upon the Lord, and just saying, Lord, when I stop, I begin to discover what a self-worshipping wretch I become when I am just Mm. obsessed with my own deadlines and my own projects Mm. and my own tasks, along with my own weaknesses and failures that I'm always trying to cover up. You know, it's like, Lord, we are here for one purpose, to become celebrities. No, to become saints (laughs) and nothing less. Everything else could end up being a distraction or eternally much worse than that. And so practically speaking, Mm. you know, as St. Jose Maria used the image, take out a knife and carve into your day the space and the time that you need to pray. And then as Mm. you begin to pray, remind God how hard it is. You know, Jesus went off to pray and he's perfect. We go off to pray and we're distracted. And so just remind the Lord, you know, you are elusive. You are invisible. I am preoccupied. I am distracted. I need your Holy Spirit and nothing less. Breathe into my soul the breath of your Mm -hmm. life or I'm toast. And just that kind of honesty is what we need. And God the Father is not going to be offended. We Mm -hmm. pray 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms. It's the one book of the Bible the church is praying 24-7. But I think the key to holiness is reflected in the fact that approximately 44% of those 150 psalms are what scholars describe as psalms of lament, or more accurately, psalms of complaint. And you're like, what do you mean, complaint? You know, you don't complain to God. Well, yes, you do. I mean, the problem is that we tend to complain about God, you know, in our own souls. (laughs) But when I think back to who ever complained to me, well, six people on planet Earth did continuously every day they thought I cared. You know, you don't complain <laughs> to someone unless you think they care about you and can make a difference. So my kids were always complaining to their father and their mother. And so we behave like children when we flatter God by asking him for the help we need and by speaking with a humble bluntness. Do you have any idea how weak I am, how wayward and how wicked I could become if you let me go and don't bring me back? That kind of prayer will make us saints. It's funny because I've I have found myself in prayer saying to God, like, I just need your help. I just need your help. That's all. And and <laughs> and I've I've actually even felt bad about it at times because I feel like I'm demanding something of him. But I also don't know I I mean, I know I can't do it without I can't do it on my own. It's just it's just impossible. And so there have been times where I'm saying to him, Lord, I need you to, you know, prevent me from getting distracted every 15 yeah. seconds. Because that's going to happen and if you don't do it. And then I'll say, I'll be like, man, I probably should say please. But but I really <laughs> yeah, need the please help. Please and thank you. Yeah. You're not mere formalities. <laughs> but if you don't, if you forget please yeah. and thank you, Abba Father isn't going to be like, Rump, I'm not giving you a thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, like Matt, image of, of... you are embarking upon fatherhood. And, you know, you're going to feel very shortly that you are in over your head. You've always been, but children make it just undeniable. And you will cry out right, and you yeah. will hold him. You know, I remember this. I, I won't go into the details, but I remember when Kimberly came home from the hospital after four days of recovering from the C-section. And she's done nursing at 3 a.m. I take him to begin burping him. I'm going to burp him for the first time and lay him down 3.05. And when I do, 
he's up on my shoulder and I, I can feel that he's vomiting and not just burping. And I look at him and he obviously feels better, but I'm like, you are the first person who's ever vomited on me before. <laughs> you know, and if you had asked me a year before, how do you think you'll feel? I mean, anger, frustration, rage. And I'm like, it's okay. Cause you feel better. And it was shocking. I, I walk into the room. I'm not ready to okay. lay him down. I sit in the rocking chair. My pajama shirt is now stuck on my back. It's getting cold and clammy, but it's like, it doesn't matter. And in a moment, God was present. I didn't see his face. I didn't hear a voice, but I, I just felt his presence. And it was like, thank you, Lord. By the way, thank you again, you know? And then I felt like he was wow. saying to me, you see how much you love your child. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, words don't get close, but there was something more than like a pop quiz, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, I love my child. It was like, do you think you love your child more than I love my children? And I'm thinking, I'm a first time dad. You're the eternal father. Obviously not. And then I realized this too is not like a, a theology pop quiz. And I'm like, wait a minute. You don't mean to tell me that you love me like this, like I love him only more. Right. And all I could think of were the, the countless times that I'd kind of vomited on God, figuratively speaking, with sin and selfishness, yeah, yeah. thinking that, well, he loves me less, he loves me less, and oh boy, I'm just barely hanging on. And our goodness isn't what causes him to love us. In fact, the, mm -hmm. the, the definition of holiness that my favorite theologian, St. Thomas Aquinas, provides was, again, the key that opened the door. Holiness is the perfection of love. That's why God alone is holy. You know, perfect love casts out all fear, but whose love is that perfect, not mine? And so I realized your love is what causes my life, my existence, and any goodness that I have is a gift from you. So any sinfulness that I have, I am going to basically hand over to you and say, you know, transform that slime into something truly holy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's funny, you know, because you're, you're talking about the way you love your son in that moment and the way that the father loves you despite sin. And I am feeling the fascination get, you know, being yeah. cultivated. Wait till we have three teenagers. And... <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Well, one at a time. Yeah, that's um, right. That's exactly right. That's a good... <laughs> but, although I'm a twin, so who knows? <laughs> but, but I feel that cultivated, uh, that fascination get cultivated. And it brings me back to the beginning of the book where you said, well, all it was was love, love, love. And so how do we distinguish that, that, you know, how do we distinguish the Beatles from the father in terms of the love? Yeah, you know, yeah. what's, what's the difference? Is it just that one is, one is emotional and the other one is active? Yeah. Is that the difference? There are two Johns, John Lennon and John the Evangelist, the, the Evangelist, <laughs> the gospel of love. You know, I, I think one way I could crisply distill it is to say it this way. You know, God loves us just the way we are. And we need to hear that from time to time, but that's all we ever heard back then and still today. Mm. But God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He wants us to be saints, not spoiled brats. And so he's going to send suffering. And then the suffering, the illness, and ultimately death itself will be, you could say, the chisel in the hand of the divine sculptor, you know, banging against the marble of our own hard hearts. And in the process of feeling the pain, wincing, feeling overwhelmed, crying out to God, or just simply giving up on him, you know, it, it really is the process of sanctification. You know, we would say to God, you know, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemies, and yet you seem to be willing it for me and my loved ones. That's because you are holy and your love is perfect. And it is the thing that will perfect me. You know, so you think of the trifecta. In Leviticus, be holy for the Lord God is holy. In Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Yikes. Luke 6, be merciful for your heavenly father is merciful. Well, we would all opt for the chocolate, not the, you know, other flavors. <laughs> but the fact is, it's not either or. You discover that the medicine of God's mercy is what perfects us and makes us holy. So it's what motivates us to be merciful to other people. Because if almighty God was willing to die on the cross to forgive me, just who do I think I am? How holy are my standards? Are they holier than his? If not, then forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And and God is going to continually send into our figurative backyard lots of trespassers so that we can be merciful, so that we can be perfected, so that we can become holy. Yeah. I'm feeling really good that you said it's not either or, it's it's all of these. Yeah. Uh, that was actually exactly the point of what I was getting at in my homily yesterday, where I was using your book. So I feel like I've I've correctly, uh, I've correctly done this. Thank you. Well, you you uh, could probably do do better than my book, but I'm glad it was helpful. <laughs> no, to say that it's it's not one thing or another that leads right. us to holiness. It's it's many things. Distinguished. There, there are right. so many things that are necessary to build us up into that into that holy person that that God has called us to be. But you used the image before of taking a knife and carving time into your day for prayer, for that time before the Lord. Um, when I read the lives of the saints, it's fascinating. You see how they how they made time and, and what that time for God looked like and, and how beautiful that is. You look at other, uh, other people around. I look at some of the priests in my diocese and I see what they're able to do and how they, how they use the time that is given to them to, to really promote the gospel, to, to preach the gospel, to minister to people in, in ways that I can't even imagine. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by it. And I, I look at you, Dr. Han, and I see uh, book after book after book. How many books are you up to now? Somewhere between 40 and 50, maybe, maybe <laughs> north of 50. I don't keep, I don't keep count. <laughs> it's a lot of books, right? I have two <laughs> you, children's you, books that have just come out. Now that I'm a papa, you know, I have Mary, mother of all, as well as seven clues. And so it's really fun to read these books to our grandkids too. And as of yesterday, three out of our 21 grandkids are teenage girls too. So pray for us. Oh, wow. You're, you're going to be great. Don't, it's, it's, it's going to work out. It's going to be fine. It will. But you know, here you are, you're, you're writing. You're a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville. You're a speaker in demand. You came out and you gave the priest convocation to us. What's a day in the life for you look like that you're able to do all of these things with God's help? What's what's it like? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what contrast there is. I've I've only been me. And plus, I'm married to Kimberly, who has twice as much energy, twice as much joy. Um, yeah, so it's like I'm a centipede, but don't ask him how he walks. He doesn't know. And I'm married to a millipede <laughs> who makes me look like I'm standing still. And so we just do one thing and then another, you know. And I, I do believe that that God had wired us naturally to be somewhat intense, but then he has rewired us supernaturally with the joy of the Lord, because that's the one thing I have found. I mean, I tend toward melancholy. We have deep depression on both sides. I'm on my side of the family. Kimberly mm -hmm. doesn't understand that at all, you know, and two or three of our kids have been really touched deeply by it. But to me, the best therapy, we, we've gone to counselors, you know, uh, but the best therapy is, is the truth of the gospel, sound mm -hmm. theology, sound doctrine, and not just like a list of things to memorize, but a list of things to ponder and contemplate like Our Lady in Luke 2.19, she pondered all of these things in our heart. That's what the knife is also for, not only to carve out time, but to keep intruders away. Because I find I'm already inclined to being distracted in prayer. But what's worse is that I'm, I'm looking for distractions. And then when the Lord shows me, you're looking for intruders. I'm like, okay, okay, then let's get back to that uh, humble complaint. Why do you put up with me? You know? <laughs> and, you know, I, I would say that working with a team of like-minded kindred spirits here at the St. Paul Center, Kimberly mm. and I have found this to be something of a breakthrough that just keeps getting bigger and better. And over the years, what we have witnessed is sort of like Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory, because you know, I, I never imagined that we would have our Lord bring together so many people and at the same time, send them out. So I, I think of Matthew Leonard and other people who have worked with us who are now doing like what Matt does in the science of sainthood and others as, as well. You know, he was the one who kind of guided us into this journey through scripture program for Lenten live streaming. So when we do this starting Ash Wednesday for six consecutive weeks, releasing two per week on Holy is His Name, I have him and countless other co-workers to thank for the production, for the marketing, for the study guide, for all of the amazing things. It's just like, you know, I, I feel like I'm surrounded by a team that I can't take any credit for. It's almost like a patient who's surrounded by a team of the world's greatest surgeons 
because he knows his needs are so deep that, you know, second rate won't cut it, you know? And, and so I would encourage people to go to the St. Paul Center website, stpaulcenter.com, check out the series. It's going to be live. And if you get the study guide, in addition to the, um, the two weekly episodes for six consecutive weeks, you basically have four months to access a lot of other stuff as well. And mm. so again, glory to God in the highest for what he is doing in our day and hour and, and in our age, you know, the church, both the clergy and the laity are so weak. You know, it reminds me of what a friend of mine, often Ruth says, you know, let's face it, you know, we're outnumbered, we're surrounded, we're infiltrated. What should we conclude? That there has never been a better time to be a faithful Catholic. That mm. God's weakness, that, that God's strength will be made perfect in our weakness. All we've got to do is be honest and admit how weak we are, how much we desire his strength. And once again, he's not going to say, well, I'll think about it. He wants to give it to us more than we want him to. Hmm. That's great. Um, as the father of a priest, saying these things about what we as a church, we're, we're in such a position of weakness. Um, how do you speak first, I guess, to your son as a priest and as a father um, about this? And then how would you how would you speak these same things to um, to the parents of priests? Because I think, you know, I know my parents, uh, they, they've come to a place where, you know, every once in a while dad speaks to me as dad. And then sometimes dad speaks to me as, hey, father, I have a question for you. <laughs> He's coming looking yeah. for, for that advice. Um, and it's a, it's a really, it's a powerful experience to have for, I know for me as a, as a priest, but to have my father still be a father to me, still teach me. Um, and at the same time, see me in that, in that priestly sense. Um, what would you say to the, to the parents of priests? Well, your um, in your own experience is, as, as the father of a priest. Yeah, your timing is good, Father Sam, because Father Jeremiah has his day off, and he came by last night and this morning as well, and so we had a lot of time to catch up. And I think it's about a two-to-one ratio. I call him Father Jer, Father Jeremiah, and Jeremiah. Um, but I think the ratio is intentionally sort of lopsidedly toward father, because what I want to do is to continually be a father to him in the natural order and an older brother in Christ in the spiritual order. But I also want him to recognize that I marvel at the grace of sacramental paternity that God has conferred upon him. I mean, I could forgive my kids, but I couldn't resurrect them from the death of mortal sin to eternal life like he can do in the confessional. I was the breadwinner, but if I spoke the words of consecration over the bread, it was still bread. You know, so I want him to recognize the sort of humble prodigy that God the Father calls him to be, to be in persona Christi, you know, but also to get that knife out and maybe a bigger knife, you know, because fatherhood, you know, like motherhood is a lot of drudgery and distraction and priestly fatherhood is, as you know, better than I know, the same, you know, administrative details, you know, personality conflicts, all kinds of folks, you know, here comes everybody. Plus, you don't have the natural bonds of family affection so that you can right. almost predict, you know, their strengths and weaknesses, you know, and so you have to be a father to people who you seem to be unrelated to. Of course, you know, going back to Noah, we're all interrelated and God the Father sees that, but more specifically, you know, going back to Christ because you feed them the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. We become members of his mystical body younger brothers and sisters. And so, again, mm -hmm. it's just like discovering the obvious, the sacred mysteries of our faith, especially the priesthood, especially when my son became my father on May 21st, 2021. I mean, it's like, it's amazing how unamazed we are. You know, it, and it's, it was so fitting that in the last encyclical that Pope St. John Paul II ever wrote, it was on the Eucharist and the Church of the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, and he called not only for the renewal of Eucharistic faith, not only for the renewal of Eucharistic devotion like holy hours, benediction, that kind of thing, but he called for the cultivation of Eucharistic amazement. And at mm. first, you know, you think, oh, come on, that's just hyperbole. That's just religious rhetoric. And then you reflect upon the fact that my son's a mortal man. He pronounces these human words over earthly matter of bread and wine. And you think, boy, you can do what? 
You think you can transubstantiate that bread into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the creator and the redeemer of the cosmos? And he can't. And we don't marvel. We're not amazed. You know, we might as well yeah. be like parents saying, Paulie, want a cracker? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Rock, you know. It's like, no. Step back <laughs> and take stock of what we profess and then say to God, forgive us for taking so much grace for granted. And renew yeah. our faith. What a precious gift it is for us to profess this. Let's possess this. Yeah. Well, now in this time of, of Eucharistic revival that the church in the United States yeah. is going through, we're, we're working towards this. Um, on the same on the same tangent and track that you're that you're on right now. Then, going beyond just just our our sons and and those who are becoming priests, but going out to the, to the whole church. What do you see as, as that great need for that Eucharistic revival to really take place? How will it happen? Well, you already pinpointed with laser precision when you mentioned the priesthood, because, you know, we need to pray for an increase of holy worthy occasions of the priesthood. You know, I wrote a book uh, called Many Are Called, Rediscovering the Glory of the Priesthood, several years ago, right around the time that Jeremiah was, in fact, discerning. It was the You led that book with my classmate. Oh, wow. The, the, your first chapter is Father Joe Friedi, who's my classmate <sighs> in seminary. Oh, yeah. he was just with us on the priest retreat as the chaplain. Oh, it was no amazing kidding. last month. He's, he's great. I love that friend. man. Oh, Father Joe. And he was going to end up possibly as a quarterback because, you know, he was there yeah. around the same time as big Ben Roethlisberger was coming out of college <laughs> and all the rest. You know, I, I think I would say to young men that if you don't find the priesthood desirable or attractive, that doesn't mean that you're not called to it. That really only means one thing. You haven't understood it yet. If you understood the priesthood, you would recognize you've got to be kidding. I mean, this is intrinsically desirable. <laughs> it is inherently, I mean, maybe I'm not called to it, but at least I know. And, and in writing that book, you know, I found out that my two oldest sons, without ever telling me, went to the bishop and went to the vocations director. And in one case, the guy, the priest said to my son, oh, you know, be a priest. It's easy, you know, day off your guaranteed income and, you know. And, you know, he left like he was fleeing a burning building. It's like... What kind of crazy vocation know, director says like, anything like that? That's insane. Know, if the vocations director had said, you might be martyred, you know, Gabriel would have said, where do I sign up, you know? <laughs> uh, he was ready to sacrifice the mass, but more, you know? And uh, in my other case, you know, Michael also did the same thing. And I didn't know this until much, until very recently, but mm. the... Um, the idea is that it is desirable. It is attractive. But besides the priesthood, I just think that wherever we are in the middle of the world, what we've got to recognize is that we don't have to go off and become, you know, a deacon or, I mean, if people are called to be a deacon, thanks be to God for that calling. But you don't have to be like a, an extraordinary minister or a member of parish council because now I'm serious about living my faith. No, be serious about living your faith in the middle of the world where God has called you. You know, if you're walking down Main Street, look around and pray for the people, but be a contemplative on Main Street. You know, if you're called to practice law, God have mercy on your soul, but be a saint in the middle of the world, you know? Whatever it is you're called to do, make it not only your profession, but the result of your profession of faith. And so I think God is eager to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us now far more than we can imagine, much less ask him. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, as as we look at holy as His name and the study guide that goes along with it, and these these important things that are are there now, resources that that you're able to provide, um, these are good for individuals. These are good for small groups. These are good for parishes to take on. Exactly. Um, having just given a priest convocation and many others, I'm sure this past year. Um, last thing, I guess, would just be what what do you want priests to know? as they work through your material, what do you want priests to know just in general about what you see as that great need from yeah, you know, them? It's hard to sum up, but I would say, you know, constantly remind yourself and your people that holiness is, uh, is not hard. It's just humanly impossible. You know, we cannot do it on our own. And yet, you know, Hebrews 12, 14 reminds us, strive for holiness. For without it, you will not see God. Oh, well, okay. Well, without seeing God, what are the options? Don't go there. You don't want that, you know? So striving for holiness is like sanctified common sense. 
but acknowledging that we can't make ourselves holy because holiness is not about making ourselves bigger and better, smarter and stronger. You know, it really is about becoming smaller and, and, and quiet and growing closer to our Lord, like our lady or like the beloved disciple. And so, you know, I would encourage priests to look in the mirror and say, Lord, in spite of everything, make me holy and use me to make others holy, but help me to never grow tired or weary of this long marathon, you know? And when I am weary, help me to be honest with you and help me to encourage my sons and daughters, my brothers and sisters in the, in the parish to be that kind of blunt, that kind of honest with you, like I'm weary, you know, just, I know when we get into heaven, we'll look back after, you know, 10 billion years and realize that's just the first minute. Why did earthly life seem so long? You know, well, just keep putting things into eternal perspective for yourselves as priests and for the people of God as well. And when we get home and we see the face of God, the father, we'll realize that all of that striving was not only worth it, it exceeds our wildest dreams and our highest hopes. And this is not just like, you know, uh, hot, spicy Catholic talking points. I mean, this <laughs> is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God, get home to you. Amen. Amen. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Han, thank you. You've been so generous to give us this time. This is yeah. this is fantastic. Um, I'm so excited to get this to get this out to our, our listeners and to uh, to keep going with this. And and I love the work that you're doing with the the St. Paul Center. We've actually got a few a few of your other authors lined up who are going to yeah. join us to to talk about some of their books. So we're really excited about about this and and working and just seeing all this all this good stuff that's coming. Thank you for what you're giving to the church. Oh, you're welcome, Father Sam, and thank you, Matt, for your yes to being open to life as well. And oh, may the Lord bless you as a husband and a father. Yeah, thank you. It's one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten, so. Yeah, it was. It is. Yeah, yeah and it will be. Amen. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time for giving us this uh, this opportunity with you. This is The Tangent. I'm Father Sam Kachuba. I'm Matt Spraza. God bless you. Mm-hmm.